American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Mr. Gorbachev, <laughs> please tickle my balls. Uh, welcome what? back to the Cold War. Uh, this is uh, episode 122. Nice. I believe, Ray. Wow. Uh, how are you today? I am. Ray, Ray. I'm. Start of a bitch. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great too. Good. We're doing great together. Ah, we are great together. What? Like <laughs> jelly and peanut butter. <laughs> So we call it jam, but you know. I understand. No one's yeah. perfect. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk in this episode, Ray. Yeah. I want to start getting into the Christians who oppose the New Deal. Yeah. Now, remember last time, uh, well, not last time, time before last, a couple of episodes ago. Right. We talked about how FDR and the New Deal was sort of based on a Christian movement from the late 19th, early 20th century called the Social Gospel, Aww. where some Christian leaders in the United States were running around going, you know what, <laughs> we need to be nice to people. What would Jesus do? Yeah. yeah. What would Jesus do? And we need to start cleaning up society. We need to look after the poor. Uh, we need to stop men from beating up their wives, which means stopping them from drinking, and that's where prohibition came from. Right. We should probably, hear me out, I know this sounds crazy, but we should probably right. let women vote. Um, I know, I, I know, <laughs> it sounds crazy. This is America after all. Yeah. Uh, we, don't, we didn't go in for such uh, crazy progressive notions as letting yeah. women vote, but... I don't know. Yeah. I think maybe we might get more pussy if we let them vote. So, yeah. uh, touche. I know yeah. it's crazy, but sometimes you've got to be prepared to do crazy things if you want to get pussy. That's, that's, just ask. Amen, brother. Scotty, just ask Scotty Burbick. Poor <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh. Scotty Burbick and his pussy challenges. Be- hey, Scotty. <laughs> before he's wow. slapping his forehead about now. Before you. Um, before you go into mm. Coughlin, there there was just one little preface I wanted to give, but I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt your flow. I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, well, for a start, that's not how you pronounce his fucking name. Coughlin? How do you pronounce it? Coughlin? Coughlin. Coughlin? No. Coughlin. I had the same fucking argument with my wife. She goes, no, you're wrong. <laughs> and I said, so, oh, really? Well, you better tell him that because that's how he pronounced his own Co- fucking name. Coughlin? Coglin. Coglin. Yeah, I'm not going to remember that. Coglin. Because I watched like 20 YouTube videos of his speeches. Um, yeah, before I get into that, what? I, I just had a little, a little something to, to, to give it some context, I, and this won't take very long. But So we've talked about FDR being attacked from the right, the political right, the rich, his own people, the conservatives, the owners of land and production. But... The New Deal in FDR was also attacked from the left as well. And one of the most famous opponents from the left was Huey Long. And this guy was really fascinating. This guy was just this braggadocio, bombastic kind of guy. He was a senator from Louisiana. And he criticized Roosevelt for 
wait for it, not doing enough for the poor. His alternative to the New Deal was called the Share Our Wealth. He promised to confiscate any personal fortune over $3 million, and he would use that money to give each American family between four dollars and $5,000 so they could buy a home and a car. He also promised a national minimum wage, old age pensions, and cheaper food for the poor. He also promised to make all education free in America. Who does that sound like? But the point is, with people like this, and there are going to be others that are are going to come into the story, people like this, to some degree, actually gave FDR some cover because it made him look less radical. But as you're about to find out, that wasn't enough for those on the political and religious right. They still fought FDR with everything they could, and they came up with some new tools to go after him and his New Deal policies. And what happened to Huey Long? He died in 1935. I think he was shot. I can't. Oh, I think I, I'm really yeah, trying he to was shot. Was he? I don't know. Yeah. What? Yeah. He, uh, September 8th, 1935, Huey was um, at the courthouse. Right. He had been trying to get rid of one. It was at the state capitol, actually. Mm-hmm. He was trying to get rid of one of his longtime opponents, a judge, Benjamin oh, Henry Harvey. Right. Uh, just after the passage of a bill which was which had basically removed Parvey as a judge, Parvey's son-in-law... Oh, here we go. Carl Weiss, a physician from Baton Rouge, walked up to Long and shot him in the stomach God. with a handgun from four feet away. Oh, my God. Huey Long's bodyguards shot back at Weiss... Uh, killing late, him, right. an, an autopsy found that Weiss had been shot more than 60 times. <laughs> See, that doesn't make up Long's for being too slow. It, bodyguards. Yeah. Your boss is still dead. I'm just saying. Long Long died, um, according to various sources. His last words were either, I wonder what will happen to my poor university boys or I have so much to do. I think what he said was to the strongest, but I could be wrong. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, like he was, uh, he was, you know, a, a ballsy um, yeah. leftist leader. One of the last to ever be seen. Populist. Yeah. In America until Bernie Sanders, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy was a true leftist uh, leader. Yeah. Um, I was actually thinking we should figure out how to. I mean, do a show about him at some point in more detail. He, That'd be know, fine. He, he died, yeah, he Relatively. died a bit of, you know, before the Cold War, but, yeah. um, you yeah. know. It'd be fine. So, can I, can I get on Please. to uh, Father, Father Charlie? Thank you, sir. I appreciate mm. your time. So, the Christians had started the social gospel thing. FDR picked it up and ran into the New Deal, and mm. he would quote... Biblical stuff, and you know, right. this is he said, What would Jesus do? The New Deal, motherfuckers. That's what Jesus would do, <laughs> and that's what I'm gonna do, right? And then he got he had a lot of support early on from this guy called Father Charles Coglin. Mm-hmm. Now, Coglin was a Canadian American Roman Catholic priest, wow. uh, grew up in Canada, got his uh, orders, religious orders in Canada. Moved to the States, I think, in the, the 20s mm-hmm. and ended up uh, founding a church in Detroit, the National Shrine of the Little Flower. Oh, that sounds cute. 
Yes, very cute. Now, uh, he's commonly known as the radio priest because he was one of the first political leaders, and he was very much a political leader, to use radio mm-hmm. to reach a mass audience. He first took to the airwaves in 1926 and ended up broadcasting weekly sermons over the radio to an audience of millions and yes. millions of people who tuned in. Yeah. And by the early 1930s, his broadcasts had kind of shifted from religious sermons <laughs> right. to talking more about economics and politics as a result of the Depression, right? He right. started talking about, well, obviously the country's fucked. What are we going to do? Yeah. It's estimated that during the 1930s, he had 30 million week, weekly listeners. Ooh. So not, not quite as big as our podcast, but he was up there. He was... Okay. Oh, sorry, I thought that said thirty listeners. No, thirty <laughs> million. Sorry, right, right. Someone's got to help Give you with take. the commas. Yeah, that's wrong. Give or take million. Yeah. Um, he's also known as the father of hate radio. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Your Alex Jones, your Rush, your Rush Limbaugh. Limbaugh's, yeah. They all owe a debt of gratitude. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> to Catholic Father Charles Coglin. Now. He early on he gave a lot of speeches about how the capitalists were keeping the working man down. Yeah. Eventually he included the Jews in there. <laughs> he got but, to the uh, Jews. Yeah. 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 I wanna I wanna play a couple of clips so you get a sense of what this guy was like. Right. Here's clip number one. This is what I so often refer to as the concentration of wealth in the hands of a few. This is the system of modern capitalism, which from governmental analysis proves beyond dispute or question that in it there is no just sharing of profits in this nation. Remember that you're an American first. Remember that you're only Democrats, or Republicans, or Progressives, or Partisans, So uh, that's a speech that he's giving, uh, very impassioned. Yes. Had a great style about him. Uh, listen to this one where he's talking about presidents. Try to keep cool with cows. We try to become hard-boiled with Hardy. We try to stay out of war with Woodrow. And we try to write a new deal with Franklin Delano. We're through with the sham battle of politicians, and now we're on our own. Therefore, under your congressional district presidents, form your battalions, take up the shield of your defense, unsheathe the sword of your truth, and carry on in Illinois so that the communists, on the one hand, cannot scourge us, and that the modern capitalists, on the other, cannot flee us. And you've got to see footage of this guy. He's right. basically American Hitler. Yes. He yes. 
He's got all of the same mannerisms oh, yeah. up at the podium of Hitler. It is uncanny. <clears throat> and I I didn't really realise until I watched these videos over the last week that this was the style of the day. Like, people right. complain about Trump. Trump's got nothing <laughs> on these guys, man. Like He's low if, energy if, compared to them. Yeah. 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 Oh, Christ. They're <laughs> a thousand times the energy. The sweating. Of the a Trump. gestures. The yelling. The cadence. And, and, and you know, 50,000 people in an auditorium or a parade ground or whatever it was yeah. are waving their hats and cheering. It's basically like a Nuremberg rally, but it was happening right. in America concert. in the 30s. Right. And, and this, as you probably gather from those couple of speeches, this Coglin guy is a fascinating character. Hard to pin down. He hates communism. He also hates capitalism. So what the fuck do you want, <laughs> Charlie? Uh, something else something something (laughs) um he's 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 down the line he's all over the place now yeah and you know he makes some sense in some places like he preached that world war one was fought for economic reasons that wall street bankers pushed wilson to get the u.s involved to support the recovery of their loans uh, to great britain Probably some truth to that. It was a very popular position at the time. Historians are still arguing about it. But generally speaking, I find that American historians don't like to associate economic rationales with America going to war. That's not a yeah. uh, not a position you can get away with still today in, in American um University circles to try if you try and argue that you're going to get called a communist radical still um, so it's still a minority position but he argued that at the time and he wanted reforms yeah which sounded very much like aspects of communism yes but he hated communism yes uh, and he also supported the fascists but also spoke out <laughs> against the fascists. I suspect he's a he's a bit like Trump in that way, where he was a, a true populist demagogue who would just say anything. Yeah. What do you want to hear? To get people to cheer. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't matter if he says one thing today and a different <laughs> thing tomorrow. As long as the people cheer, he's good with it. Yeah. He was he was crazy all over the place. The one thing that I liked was when he attacked. Um, he, he hated Soviet communism, but like you were saying earlier, he attacked communism. Excuse me, he attacked American capitalists. And one of the reasons why that he kind of hinted at in that speech is like, look, you're treating your workers so bad, you're making communism look good. Now I hate communism. Now I do want monetary reforms. I do want to nationalize all the major major industries and railroads. And I want protection of labor rights, but I hate socialists too, even though that sounds like that. But it doesn't matter because he was tapping into something. And I think I read somewhere by at his peak, he had like 30 to 45 million people listening to his um, to his radio program. But here's his Achilles heel. And I won't go too far, but as much as he was giving these speeches, as much as he was working people up and they're cheering, he doesn't have this very efficient grassroots organization on the ground. There's not a lot of change going on. There's not a lot of progress. It's just like he's venting. He's popular. People are listening. They're getting worked up. But it's like clicking a protest page on Facebook. There's not a lot going on. There's not a lot of activism. There's not a lot of progress. It's just him going off on the radio once a week. 
Well, on top of that, he also had his own newspaper right. or, or magazine called Social Justice that he launched in the 30s. Yeah. And that, that had fairly big distribution oh, as yeah. well. So in January of 1930, he began a series of attacks against socialism and communism, which, of course, were opposed by the Catholic Church. As I've said before, communism was anti-religion because they saw religion as a tool of the oppression of the people, the opium of the masses. And so, of course, the church fought back against that. And he criticized capitalists in America, as you said, and said, hey, listen, you know, you're going to make communism look attractive. <laughs> now, jerks. But keep in mind, and I know I've said this before, but I'm going to go over it again. Uh, anyone who knows anything about early Christianity knows that they were proto communists. Yes. Anyone who's ever read the Bible and paid attention to it knows that the early Christians were communists. You know, obviously an early version of it. Um, Right. Here here are some quotes. Um, Acts of the Apostles says that in Jerusalem, the first converts were living in a single dwelling, selling all of their fixed assets and redistributing their wealth as each needed. Wow. And that all of their possessions were owned by the community. That's in the fucking Bible, man. (laughs) You're like, okay, well... If that's not communism, what is it? Right. Yeah, exactly. In order to join the early Christian communities, you needed to sell all of your belongings and throw it all into the kitty and then all live together. Yeah. Um, Luke 14.33, each of you who does not give up all he possesses is incapable of being my disciple, said Jesus. Wow. I'm out. Matthew 6.19, do not store up treasures for yourself on the earth. Luke 6.24, but alas for you who are rich, for you have your comfort. James 5.1, come now, you who are rich, weep, howling out at the miseries that are coming for you. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's, it's quite obvious from all this sort of stuff that uh, if Jesus existed yeah. and if these uh, quotes associated with him in the New Testament are accurate as to what he said. He had a beret. Jesus. Yeah. Jesus was a communist. Yeah, the brain smoking cigars. <laughs> Jesus was a communist. And his right. early followers were communists. Right. Um, so we're, we're all in it together. Yeah, so for for the yeah. for the Catholic Church to be anti-communist yeah. uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. They should be like, yes, communism. Yeah. Fantastic. Let's get behind it. Uh, they're right. Religion is a tool of the oppression of the masses. We all quit. Thank you. It's been fun. Right. And, but and of I course, think, all like, Christians should be Torah observant Jews as well, because the early Christians were all Torah observant Jews. But hey, you know, don't, let, so, don't let facts get in the way of your Christianity. So I'm a communist Torah observant Jew now. Just, I just want to make sure. I'm going to tell my mom. Okay. If you're sure. if you're a Christian, yeah, that's yeah, what you have I'm sure to be, that'd be really. horrible. If you're yeah, serious and, about it. And I think, as you were alluding to earlier, you know, because of the, those some of those earlier speeches, he is going to support FDR. He is going to support the New Deal at first, and he's going to encourage his people uh, over the radio to vote for FDR. And he says things like, "The New Deal is Christ's deal." So he at first really backed behind FDR. Yeah, his slogan was Roosevelt, Roof, Roosevelt or Ruin. <laughs> um, I like that. 
In January of 1934, after Roosevelt had been elected, Coughlin testified before Congress in support of the New Deal, saying, if Congress fails to back up the president in his monetary program, I predict a revolution in this country which will make the French Revolution look silly. Ooh. And you, you don't want to make the French Revolution look silly. No. Because uh, then the French get upset, and if the French <laughs> get upset with you... It's oh, on. man. You yeah. Know, it's, it's bad. Just, yeah. Yeah, they're going to take back all their... Stinky yeah. cheese and freedom fries. <laughs> and their bread. But FDR, as you can imagine, being a politician, never really trusted um, Coughlin. How did you say his name? But anyway, the the point we didn't... Cog. 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 Coughlin. Cog. Okay. Cog. Cog. Cog lover. Okay. The point is, FDR never really trusted him, and he just kind of used him to get elected because that's what politicians do. And after FDR is elected, he begins to ignore Coughlin, who doesn't appreciate being shut out of having influence in the White House. He gets upset. He takes it personal, and then they start to go their separate ways. Yeah. I mean, uh, Roosevelt doesn't take him seriously, I think, for a number of reasons, Mm -hmm. and one of which is that Coughlin, Coughlin's pronouncements were far oh. further to the left yeah. than FDR was going to go. Um, so, and also maybe he was just scared of his political power. Maybe mm-hmm. he just thought he was a bit of a crazy nut job. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, Coughlin's support for Roosevelt started to fade very quickly yeah. already. In 1934, he's he, the beginning of 1934. He's uh, saying things like "God is directing President Roosevelt" in front of Congress. He said that uh, by the end of 1934, he's basically given up. He's anti-God. He said FDR was anti-God. Whatever that means. Yeah, yeah. He um, so Coughlin. This is founded something called the National Union for Social Justice. Mm-hmm. The NUSJ. He thought like four letter acronyms that start with the letter N. Love it. Are, are in now. <laughs> um, got a flag ready to go. Don't even need to come up with a new flag. Uh, it's fantastic. Love it. Love it. Um, yeah, now apparently. According to some historians, Coughlin thought he was going to be given a big role in FDR's government. When that didn't happen, he turned on him. But he was also critical of FDR's unwillingness to really take on Wall Street. Yeah. Now, as you said earlier, like we, we know and we've seen and we're going to continue to talk about this, the industrialists hated FDR because they didn't like any form of regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the these leftists hated him as well. And Harry Bridges didn't think he was doing enough. Huey Long and Coughlin was one of these guys as well. Didn't think FDR was doing enough to right. uh, reform the um, uh, American economic and political system to make it more fairer yeah. uh, for the working classes. Can't please everybody. Either, whatever his reasons, whatever his reasons were, he turned on FDR and became a pretty harsh critic. Mm-hmm. Now the NUSJ's membership ran into the millions, yes. but as you said, it wasn't very well organized locally. But by 1934, he he was receiving 
more than 10,000 letters every day. The little uh, district where he had his little flower church needed to build, I think, two new post offices just to handle his mail. Oh, my God. His clerical staff had more than 100 people in it, basically just dealing with all of the mail that was coming in. God. But here's the thing. (laughs) All of those letters contained donations. Oh. He was was making about $250,000 a year. In 1934, 35 money. Damn. So that's, in today's money, that's millions of dollars. Yeah. And this is in the middle of the Depression. Yes. And these people he's got, are giving him money. These poor people are giving him money. Yeah. And well, not all poor people. Right. right. Yeah. And, and a few Nazis as well, as it turns <laughs> out. But uh, then, <laughs> Yeah, they're giving him tons of money to uh, help him uh, do what he's doing. And, of course, he kept some for himself. On one hand, he's denouncing Wall Street bankers. Yeah. Um, But he also had his own private account at stockbroking firm Payne Weber, where he was investing uh, his money, uh, uh, which you got to do. I mean, I get that. I, I, I... I talk about the benefits of socialism and communism, and then I run an investing podcast <laughs> on stock because That's I live in a capitalist society. I mean, right. if I had my druthers, we would all live in a highly enlightened communist society Aww. where everyone got taken care of. Yeah. Um, but we're not there yet, and I need to pay rent and buy food in the meantime well, whilst limiting the amount of harm that I do. Ethical it- Exactly. Capitalism. Absolutely. Since you mentioned the Nazis, um, Kaufman becomes friends with Joseph P. Kennedy Sr. Not not finished yet. Oh, I'm sorry, dude. I apologize. I apologize. Hold on. That's all right. And he was trying to push the country in his speeches from a gold standard to a silver standard Mm. whilst secretly behind the scenes buying silver futures, hoping that the price of silver would go up. My God. What a dick. Yeah. Yeah. So this guy was, as I said before, he foreshadowed modern talk radio (laughs) and modern evangelism. Yeah. Uh, You know, he's the original Alex Jones, Rush Limbaugh, Jimmy Baker, Glenn Beck. All rolled into one. All of these guys, <laughs> uh, it started with Father Coglin. Right. And, and I just wanted to say this real quick. We didn't, we didn't touch on this earlier, but when he was young, um, he was a part of a religious order, the, the Congregation of St. Basil. The Holy See wanted the congregation to switch from a society of common life where men and women worked together to a more monastic life. And they had to take the traditional three religious vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience. Copeland couldn't do that, so he leaves and he joins another order. So maybe he really knew what he wanted to get out of life, or maybe the humility gene just wasn't in him or whatever. But I think it's funny that he's, he says, what? I got to do what? I got to promise what? Okay, I'm out of here. And now his, I guess, every dream is coming true. He's rich. He's powerful. He's influential. But since you mentioned the Nazis earlier, I just thought I'd mention this. Um, he becomes friends with Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., the father of those Kennedys, JFK, Robert, Edward. Now, Kennedy was an uh, anti-Semite, 
and so is is Cogman, and so they become friends. And uh, Kennedy is going to go on to befriend and support Joseph McCarthy, that we'll get into later. But Kennedy also supported and worked for FDR, so he's kind of in this tricky situation. So what he tries to do behind the scenes is Kennedy is going to try to work with the Vatican to silence Coughlin, because even though we didn't really go into it, between 1926 and 1932, when he really starts to to blow up and CBS is, is broadcasting his radio messages and there's millions of people listening, he does get crazy. It's almost like he's bipolar. He says one thing one week, the opposite the next week with as much vehemence as he did. And so he's kind of all over the place. And so Kennedy is trying to, I'm sure along with other people, trying to get in touch with the Vatican to silence him because he's rocking the boat and FDR doesn't need that. But right now he is so powerful and so influential and so rich, they can't shut him up. So he just keeps getting on the radio and he keeps going after FDR and the New Deal. He was a big supporter of Hitler too, wasn't he? Yeah, Joe and Kennedy. Mussolini. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes, he was. I, I, know, I know we talked about this before in, a, in a sh- one of the shows, but mm-hmm. he was the ambassador, ambassador to, to England. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he said, listen, Hitler's a good guy yeah. and he's going to win. He's so, going to win. So, uh, you let's, know what? It's cut a yeah. deal. It's cut a deal. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Coglin. Yes. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and Coglin was openly sy- sympathetic with Hitler and Mussolini. As well, but supposedly only because he wanted to counter communism. But I think we know the truth. Kennedy once said to one of his aides, um, individual Jews are all right, but as a race, they stink. They (laughs) spoil everything they touch. Look what they did to the movies. Oh, my God. He said it with a straight face, too. Anyway. Mm. Yeah, so... um, Kennedy and Frank Murphy, who mentioned a couple of times, he was the governor of Michigan, right. who later got knifed by the Dyes Committee for arranging a peaceful resolution in the automobile strike. He's another uh, prominent Irish Catholic. Right. And so those two guys would try and calm Coglin the fuck down. Coglin would go and visit Roosevelt, accompanied by Kennedy from time to time. Wow. He used to refer to Kennedy, Coglin this is, used to refer to Kennedy as a shining star among the dim knights in the Roosevelt administration. It's after it turned on him. Right. In 1935, Coglin proclaimed, I have dedicated my life to fight against the heinous rottenness of modern capitalism because it robs the labourer of this world's goods. But blow for blow, I shall strike against communism because it robs us of the next world's happiness. Oh, my God. So... His argument against communism, Mm -hmm. as far as I could tell, was mostly about its position on religion. Ah, the afterlife. He agreed agreed with communism on nearly everything, (laughs) yeah, except their stance on religion. Right. He wanted to basically invent a new kind of communism that shared everything with uh, communism (laughs) except... And how- he wanted to be Stalin, right. and he wanted to keep religion in the mix. Yeah, and he can't just come out and say that, so he's got to do his thing. Uh, and then in 1936, he formed his own political party, the Union Party, mm-hmm. 
because he thought, you know, the uh, things associated with the union in American history have always done well. Um, I, I'm going to play. I'm going to, you know, right. leverage that right. the great long tradition of uh, union parties and armies. Yeah, uh, I'm going to uh, sure. Going to be good. Yeah. And he chose as he, you know, he wanted to be the candidate himself, but he couldn't because he was a Canadian. Right. So he chose a Republican congressman from North Dakota, William Lemke, mm. as his uh, as his uh, candidate. Right. Now there was another guy involved in the creation of the Union Party, Gerald L. K. Smith. Mm-hmm. You ever heard of Jerry Smith? Not this particular one, no. Tell me about him. He was another right-wing clergyman known as the Minister of Hate. (laughs) He founded founded a political party uh, later on in 1944 called the America First Party. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sounds familiar. (laughs) Um, He was a presidential candidate himself that year, hated welfare, famously said things like, you cannot legislate the poor into freedom by legislating the wealthy out of freedom. Nice. He was a Holocaust denier after the war, claimed that the six million Jews didn't die in death camps. They actually just immigrated to the United States during the war. Right. He wanted all of the Nazi prisoners released from Nuremberg. And here's another guy who did a great impersonation of Hitler. Listen to this speech. Mm-hmm. These great phenomenal assemblies, whether they be headed by Dr. Francis E. Townsend, Gerald Smith, or Father Charles E. Coughlin, represent the unmistakable edict that is being issued to the corrupt, thieving politicians of America that the baby heaven stump grubbing, sod busting, go to meeting, God fearing American people are about to take over the United States government of America. Parson. God damn. Can, can I just say real quick that if I listened to his podcast, I would put it on one and a half times speed because I haven't got time for all those pauses, and that's coming from me. Come on. That was too goddamn much. Well, actually, Coughlin's – I haven't played any of his radio programs yet, only his speeches, but Coughlin's radio programs remind me a little bit of your World War II podcast. Right. Um, I'll play a bit here. He started yep. to use his radio program in the 30s to broadcast anti-Semitic commentary. Have a listen to this. You appreciate the fact, my dear friends. Sorry, this is another speech. It's not a radio thing. I think I've got a radio thing here somewhere, but this is another live uh, you know, speech in front of a big audience in Cleveland, by the looks of it. That, among other things, in the National Union for Social Justice... We are Christian in so far as we believe in Christ's principle of love your neighbor as yourself. And with that principle, I challenge every Jew in this nation to tell me that he does not believe in it. 
need of communizing all the factories and the fields and the forests and the mines under a new kind of God made of flesh and blood and clay and hatred. When men become so prideful that they believe their destiny is to rewrite the eternal law of God, it's time for their fellow citizens to rise up in their wrath and through the agency of ballots and not bullets to relegate them to the pages of the past. Now, of course, if I was a Jew, I'd be saying, motherfucker, who's rewriting the eternal laws of God? We had the eternal laws of God first. The new cunts. For centuries, yeah. you cunts came along and said, no, 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 we're rewriting <laughs> Fuck you. You want to talk about the eternal law of God? We invented the eternal law of God, motherfucker. Well, we borrowed a lot of it from the Persians when we were in Babylon. But, you know, between us and the Babylonians. Yeah. We- oh, dang. Yeah. But you got to watch the video of these guys, Gerald Smith and Coughlin, just to see how much like Hitler yeah. they look and sound. They've got the same arm movements and the finger waving yeah. and the whole deal, man. It's it's It's, it's a workout. Yeah, but, you know, so you, if you put yourself in the 30s, yeah. uh, you were a, somebody, a bystander watching this. You're seeing footage uh, from Germany of Hitler, you're seeing these guys mm-hmm. locally, you're like, well, shit, yeah. these guys are local Hitler. Right. They're trying to create a, 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 an uprising of the people. And no wonder uh, guys like FDR wanted to shut guys like Coughlin yeah. down. Well, uh, so, I, I just have to say real quick, Hitler and Mussolini over and over and over again were very open and honest. They said, look, speeches are about tapping into emotions, about getting people to get worked up because the moment they're worked up, they will not and they cannot think, they cannot process. You take that away from them. And that's exactly what these people are doing, again, for their own their own advantage. They're getting these people to feel and not think. And even though they're saying kind of crazy shit, it's working for them. Now, by the late 1930s, Coughlin started to publicly support some of the fascist policies of Hitler, Mussolini, and Hirohito. Yeah. Um, but, and, and whilst still going on about communism, he continued to say things like this. We maintain the principle that there can be no lasting prosperity if free competition exists in industry. Right. Therefore, it is the business of government not only to legislate for a minimum annual wage and maximum working schedule to be observed by industry, but also so to curtail individualism, that, if necessary, factories shall be licensed and their output shall be limited. Now, interesting to realise that a minimum annual wage and maximum working schedule... Mm -hmm. 40-hour work week, uh, still at this point, weren't uh, established in the United States. Not by law, no. Of course, I don't think you still have a decent annual wage in most parts of the country, right? It's it's The federal, federal, yeah, it's still low. 
Yeah. It's still ridiculous, uh, nearly a, a century later. Right. See, again, Kogman's all over the place because, like you're saying, he's he's openly sympathetic to Hitler and Mussolini, and he wants the the less well-off to be paid a fair wage. And he was going off, and, and, and the other guy mentioned Dr. Francis Townsend, uh, a physician. He, so Coughlin teams up with him, and they oppose, their, they oppose the uh, New Deal because they want to do it a little different. And that's one of the things that I kept, finding odd. It's like, we want to help the poor this way. You want to help the poor your way. Your way is wrong. It's anti-God. Our way is right. And there really are splitting hairs. Like Townsend wanted the federal government to give all citizens over the age of 60 or older um, $200 a month to be financed by a 2% sales tax. And he wanted, um, and and these two gentlemen joined with another guy named Gerald Smith, Huey Long's successor. And they all planned to get together to motivate the masses during the 1936 election because they really thought they could tap into the voting strength of those in America who were less well off. But obviously, as we all know, FDR wins the re-election by 60% of the vote, which was a landslide at the time. So again, they've got these these people listening to them, but they're not able to move the ball forward very well. But they are a pain in FDR's side. Now, Coughlin around this period started calling Roosevelt Franklin double-crossing Rosenvelt. <laughs> God. Which actually was the original family name when they arrived in the American colonies in the mid-17th century. Clay, the first uh, Roosevelt to uh, come from New Amsterdam to the United States was Claes van Rosenvelt. Wow. Hmm. Uh, He was uh, Dutch. Rosenvelt means rose field, from a rose field or of a rose field, I believe. Claes van Rosenvelt arrived somewhere between 1638 and 1649. Mm. Around the year 1652, he bought a farm, which comprised about 48 acres, right. in modern Midtown Manhattan, <laughs> the present site right. of the Empire State Building. <laughs> Wow. Was a farm owned by Claes van Rosenfeld. Things have changed. He was the, I think, the great, 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 great grandfather of both Teddy and <laughs> right. Franklin and probably Eleanor. Uh, <laughs> related, keep, it, right? keep it in the family. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was Claes's son, Nicholas, who first changed the spelling to Roosevelt. Right. And he was also the first to hold political office. He was Mm. an alderman. Don't know why he changed it, though. I tried to find out why the change from Rosenvelt to Roosevelt, but Hmm. uh, couldn't couldn't figure it out. And for some reason, uh, Coughlin thought calling him double-crossing Rosenvelt was some sort of a great slur. On, uh, on FDR. Well, the other part of that is by 1936, as he's openly um, complimenting Hitler and Mussolini, or, or at least certain policies of theirs, some of the radio stations, and, and he's all over the place, don't get me wrong, but some of the radio stations start backing off and they start not airing his shows. So I think there's there's cracks in the power structure that is his that is his uh, ministry, and maybe going after FDR with something as, ta- as as simple as this is just his attempt to to strike out at the president because he's starting to you know 
suffer from all the crazy shit that he's saying. Uh, he's been striking out against the president since 34, man. Like, he turned on him pretty quickly when he didn't get what he wanted. Yeah. Uh, which seems to have been, you know, a position of some power, political power, political authority for himself. I think he saw himself as like, he wanted to be the country's leading Catholic uh, voice. Moral compass. Uh, so. Yeah, and saw yeah saw himself as basically being a senior advisor to the president and all this kind of stuff. When FDR right. went like, "No, nah, fuck yeah. off," um, <laughs> he, he turned on him. Right. Um, now he started calling FDR the great betrayer and liar, <gasps> and as you said, he became a, a big hero to the American Nazis, uh, the German American Bund. Right. Uh, I don't know if you saw the photos that I posted on Facebook uh, the last couple of days, but I found out that there was actually a Nazi training camp on Long Island in New oh York. God. In the 30s, where they had like 40,000 people attending Nazi training. Um, <laughs> they would have American flags hanging beside uh, Nazi flags. Yeah, I did see that. They're all, there's, there's plenty of photos there. They had an entire town mapped out with Adolf Hitler Street and Joseph Goebbels Street. Um, <laughs> it was full on, man. They yeah. were getting ready. They were getting ready to yeah. take over. Uh, I take the road of fascism, Charlie Coughlin said mm-hmm. in 1936. So he's increasingly supporting it. There's um, there's a video of so there's a very famous Nazi rally, well a German uh, American Bund right. rally at um, Albert Hall, Royal Albert Hall. In uh, is that what it's called? In you, it's the uh, I believe York? so. Yeah, Albert Hall. I believe so. Yeah, yeah. 1939. Big Nazi rally. Right. Uh, sold out. And there's footage of it. And uh, a German Nazi on stage giving a speech to a packed crowd. God. And when he mentions Father Charles Coughlin, the audience erupts <laughs> in applause. <laughs> Woo! The Nazis love, the American Nazis God. loved Catholic Charles Coughlin. Now, according to our old friend J. Edgar Hoover, there was an American-German investment banker, August Gausebeck, who ran an investment bank called Robert C. Meyer & Co. He was a member of the Nazi Party and was laundering money, (coughs) sending tens of of thousands of dollars in untraceable $5 and $10 bills to Father Coughlin. All these letters that were coming in (gasps) to support his affairs. A chunk of them were uh, was Nazi money laundering. Oh my god! God, as I'm sure it was for for uh, you know Bernie Sanders and uh, Obama. Lots of Nazi money just you know being oh sent in. I I, I I just have to say real quick before we go on. I mean, just picture that in 1939, right before the war starts. There's this decent percentage of Americans, or who knows, I don't know what the percentage is, but that are openly with the Nazis. You have the war, they lose, they're considered the scum of the earth, you can't get any worse. And now it's 2019 and we're back to people open in America, I don't know about other countries, but openly carrying the Nazi flag, doing the Nazi salute and marching through the streets. I mean, it's just a fucking crazy time that we live in. 
to go, just full circle. It was um, Madison Square Garden where right. the Nazi rally was. February 20th, 1939. Just months before Hitler invades Poland and ignites the deadliest war in history, thousands of Nazis gather for a rally at an indoor arena. But this isn't Nuremberg or Berlin. This is Madison Square Garden in New York City. By the way, the video I'm watching here, mm-hmm. uh, there's a stage uh, with George Washington, a huge yes. picture of George Washington on yeah. the back of it, and Nazis saluting, uh, with Nazi salutes, uh, George Washington. <sighs> Fantastic. Fabulous. Jesus. I mean, Americans are like, oh, my God, Nazis today? <gasps> Back then? Fucking holding rallies in Madison Square Garden. Damn. Um, now, Coughlin, uh, by this stage, he's saying Jewish bankers were behind the Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, on November 20th, 1938, two weeks after Kristallnacht, when the mm-hmm. Nazis uh, attacked the German and Austrian Jews, Coughlin said that Jewish persecution was only happening because they had first been persecuting the Christians. Oh, my God. But he denied being an anti-Semite. Here's a broadcast from December 1938. Mm -hmm. Counter. My friends. It is appropriate for me to re-express the thoughts which were woven in bold colors throughout the last three discourses. They are these. I hold no animosity towards the Jews. I distinguish most carefully between good Jews and bad Jews, as well as I do between the good Gentiles and bad Gentiles. I sincerely sympathize... You know, the good blacks and the bad blacks, right? I've already said that to you. There's the, right. it's the good blacks... <laughs> The good and the bad Canadians. Right, exactly. Yeah, right. ...with the millions of humble religious Jews, both in America and elsewhere, who have been persecuted by a thoughtless world, a world which does not always distinguish between the good Jews and the bad Jews, a world which lashes at the pillar of persecution, the innocent Jews, for the misdemeanors of the guilty Jews. Openly and fearlessly do I admit that my main contention is with the atheistic Jew and Gentile, the communistic Jew and Gentile, who have been responsible and will continue to be responsible in great part, both for the discriminations and the persecutions inflicted upon the Jews as a body. So, yeah, it's the atheists, right? That's the, that's <laughs> right. the big problem. Yeah. It's the atheists. atheists. It's the bad Jews that he's, uh, bad Jew Jew. he doesn't like. Yeah. Doesn't he's, he sound uh, calm? Here's a clip of... Yeah, that's his radio show. Uh, very calm and, right. and uh, a bit Poised. like a bit like your podcast. People, people used to put it on in order to help them get to sleep if they had insomnia at night. Here's uh, here's another one from 1939. Who are they who are sounding the trumpets of destruction and beating the drums of war? They are not the unemployed. They are not the exploited. They are not the oppressed farmers. They are not the tax-burdened citizens. And especially, 
They are not the youth of America, upon whom we of the older generation have cast the burdens of our injustices. The entire world clamors for peace, and the entire world is beginning to recognize that there can be no peace without justice. What is justice? Certainly it is not the perpetuation of the status quo. I mean, the concept of justice is intimately bound up with the concept of restitution. If a thief steals your motor car, justice is not satisfied until the stolen property is restored to you. Moreover, you do not rest in peace until your motor car is returned to your possession. Therefore, is it not clear that there can be no peace without justice and that there can be no justice without restitution of ill-gotten goods? His affect is fascinating because he didn't talk like that in the speeches. Right. But he talked like this. <laughs> it's a little bit... <laughs> It's a little bit of... Uh, I don't know what he's trying to do, who's, to, who's doing there, but... To uh, me, it yeah. sounds like the, the child snatcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Hello, children. Would you like some candy? Yeah! God. <laughs> Jeez. And there it, can be no peace without restitution. Oh. I used to say to him, Charlie, throw in some dick jokes, and you're going to be... <laughs> you you're going to have a massively... Smaller audience, um, just <laughs> quality, not quantity. That's what we go for. I saw somebody. There was a Reddit thread, I think, and mm-hmm. somebody was asking for you know uh, sources on uh, the life of Caesar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and somebody, thank you to whoever it was, jumped in and said, "Well, of course, Ray and Cam's podcast is the <laughs> fucking gold standard." Yeah. Some guy replied, "Not to my taste. Not to my taste." Oh. Mm. I was like, well, you know, well, we know what that says about you. You're a homophobe. Uh, uptight. And, uh, yeah. Uptight homophobe. And you don't like Vegas. Just like right. gay dick jokes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, in a series of articles published in his newspaper, Social Justice, during 1938, Coughlin lambasted Jewish financiers and their control <sighs> over world politics. Yeah. He even read out and broadcast the infamous... Forgery, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Oh, God. Do you know about this document, Ray? I'm sure you do. No, but it sounds like it's horseshit. Please tell me. You don't know about it. I'm surprised. I thought it would have come up in your World War II series, um, hmm. or at least in your uh, Catholic training. Teaching, yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, first published in Russia in 1903. It's supposedly right. the minutes of a late 19th century meeting where Jewish leaders discussed their goal of global Jewish hegemony <laughs> by subverting the morals of the Gentiles, controlling the press and the world's economies. Henry Ford funded the printing of 500,000 copies of it oh uh, in the 1920s, which were distributed throughout the United States. 
The Nazis used it as propaganda against the Jews. It was assigned to German teachers mm-hmm. to be read to German school children uh, after the Nazis came to power in 1933, uh, despite having already been exposed as fraudulent by the Times of London in 1921. God. But, uh, you know, in uh, the late 30s, Coughlin read it, read it out wow. to his audience as if it was the real right. deal. And they believe he would that. also say things like, my purpose is to help eradicate <laughs> from the world. I'm sort of channeling a bit of Vincent Price here, <laughs> I think, is what he did. My purpose... <laughs> I can't do Vincent Price. <laughs> Bill Hader does a good Vincent Price. Yeah. My purpose here is to help eradicate from the world its mania for persecution, to help align all good men, Catholic and Protestant, Jew and Gentile, Christian and non-Christian, uh-huh. in a battle to stamp out the ferocity, the barbarism, and the hate of this bloody era. I want the good Jews with me, and I'm called a Jew beta, an anti-Semite. The good Jews and the good niggers, Ray, <laughs> they're the ones that I want with me. As, as they well as are, the rest. of course, yeah. the ones that agree with me, <laughs> and the ones that accept Jesus. The Jews that accept Jesus as Messiah are the good Jews. The rest of them are kikes, and I wish they would all be thrown in a gas chamber. Or burn in hell forever. The good Negroes are the ones who accept their slavery and their segregation with the smile on their face and and praise Jesus. Yes. Yeah. 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 Jeez, this guy. Uh, in a 1938 broadcast, he helped inspire the creation of something called the Christian Front, mm-hmm. which was an American militia organization God. that excluded Jews and promised to defend the country from communists and Jews. It <laughs> had about uh, well several thousand members, mostly Irish American Catholics in New oh. York City. They sold his social justice magazine, organized boycotts of Jewish businesses, held parades and rallies, said that all of all Reds were Jews and vice versa. Oh, God. Um, welcomed the uh, German Nazis uh, to their rallies, had speakers at their rallies that denounced Jews as international bankers, warmongers, communists, called Roosevelt, Rosenvelt, praised Franco, Hitler, and Hirohito. Yeah. Uh, the Roman Catholic Bishop of Brooklyn, Thomas Malloy, was a big supporter of uh, the Christian Front. His newspaper, The Tablet, once addressed the charge that the Christian Front was anti-Semitic by saying, well, what of it? Just what law was violated? We're allowed to hate <laughs> Jews if we want. What are you going to yeah. do about it? But you can't be communist. Yeah. I, I just want to say real quick that if if the Jews come after you, you'll never know it. That's all I'm saying. And I mean that in a good way. Just you'll never know it because they're that organized. So the idea that the Jews are going to rise up and take over or take power is absurd. They've already taken power, though, Ray. That's my point. Oh, have they? I missed that. That was uh, subtle. 
Yeah. You know what they've taken control of? Podcasting. <laughs> Have they? That's why. That's Here why we we're not more successful. It's the Jews. <laughs> right, the Jews. Have taken control uh, of podcasting. It, I don't know. They're keeping us out because I'm an atheist <laughs> and you're a whatever you are. I don't even know. I don't who know you what are. I. I'm all over mm. the place. Lapsed Catholic. Yeah. The worst. Um, uh, yes. So <laughs> the front, the Christian front, also tried to replace union officials who were deemed too Jewish with Christian leadership. Uh, they participated in that Nazi rally at Madison Square Garden. Right. In January 1940, federal agents arrested 17 men from the Christian Front. They Ooh. were residents of Brooklyn. They were charged with conspiring to overthrow, put down and destroy by force the government of the United States. Yeah, can't do that. Now... Coughlin responded to the arrests with a statement of support for the Christian Front, calling it <laughs> pro-American, pro-Christian, anti-communist, and anti-Nazi. Still legal. So the thing here is, Ray, we don't want communists to overthrow the government. Right. But if it's a Christian militia organization <laughs> that's hey, going to overthrow all the good. government, all good. Okay. No problem there. Move <laughs> along. Nothing to see here. Um, praise be under his Jesus eye. Jesus is with us. Um, yeah. Even after Pearl Harbor happened on December 7th, 1941, Coggan continued to denounce the entry of the United States into the war, claiming mm-hmm. that the Jews had planned the war for their own benefit sure, and had conspired to get the United States involved. The Jews were the ones in the planes but- bombing Pearl Harbor. I'm sure of it. Mm-hmm. Mm. But Coughlin's influence basically came to an end in 1942. Yeah. When the U.S. Attorney General at the time, Biddle, Mm -hmm. who was, uh, we've talked about him before and his involvement with J. Edgar Hoover and communists and all that kind of stuff, Um, the the, the bombings, I think that was Biddle, was the bombings, the Biddle bombings. Uh, he convened a grand jury to determine whether the social justice newspaper was publishing anti-government propaganda, mm-hmm. and it was found to have done so. And so a few weeks later, the U.S. Postal Service banned the social yes. justice paper from being sent through U.S. mail on the grounds that it was in violation of the Espionage Act because it had jeopardized the war effort. Right. And, and just before that, if I could, um, bef- before the uh, the post office gets involved, um, FDR figured out that he couldn't touch free speech, but that didn't mean that broadcasting was free. So uh, they cha- they made a law, and I think they made this law just for Coughlin, just like they did for Bridges in the other episode we did, putting regulations and restrictions in the place, and you had to have permits. And so when Coughlin went to get permits, he was denied, and so he would end up buying his own airtime, which obviously cost a lot of money. So that was like a big blow to him to have to put out all that kind of money. But FDR got a law through just to start to weaken Coughlin. Now, Ray, nobody knows more about uh, the Espionage Act than you do, but 
It's amazing to me mm-hmm. that trying to stop your country from going to war can be a crime. Well, I it doesn't matter what anybody says. When Pearl Harbor comes, the country's worked up. Moderation, common sense go out the window, and we're determined to go to war. We're determined to get back at the Japanese. And for someone to say we shouldn't or we're not going to war or to try to stop us or weaken our resolve or ability to go to war, they are automatically the enemy. Because the the isolationists in America, they had a good solid 50%, and they were given FDR a hell of a time. But once Pearl Harbor happens... That is all over with. The vast majority of the country is now behind him, and we are going to war. No one can stand in the way. Yeah, but again, in a free country, mm. how can it be mm. against the against the law from trying to talk against going to war? Well, just like the government made a law just for Harry. I think his name is Harry Bridges. They make a law for uh, Coughlin here. Um, there's ways to get at people who are doing things or saying things that you don't want them to do or say are going against you. So it's not illegal, but we can find a way to either make it illegal or find a way to shut you up. Hmm. But your point, I see your well, point as it stands. A conviction could have sent him to jail for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Now, Biddle, the Attorney General, said the paper sounded a lot like Nazi propaganda. Yeah. And despite denying the charge, rather than fight it in court, mm-hmm. Father Coughlin caved in. Yes. His radio station was shut down, his radio show, his newspaper was basically shut down because he couldn't send it out to people. Right. And he just gave up. Um, the new Archbishop of Detroit, mm-hmm. under pressure from the U.S. government and the Vatican, right. banned Coglan from publishing his views in any form, or he would be defrocked. But he did get to stay a parish pastor. He did get to keep that. I think he was in Detroit, if I remember correctly, until 1966. So he had to give up all that power, all that influence. But supposedly, and hopefully he was happy for the rest of his life, he was able to keep his church. Yeah. Hopefully. He returned to the role of parish priest, continued to preach there for decades. Um, Later in life... He said the real reason he turned on Roosevelt was because he recognized the atheistic, godless government of the communists in Russia. <laughs> Jesus. So that was his that was his beef right. was with atheism. His beef with communism wasn't uh, socioeconomic or right. economic. Right. Wasn't with the economic arguments of the communists, it was with Atheism, but he spent a good uh, decade and a bit ranting against communism, mm-hmm. not because of their desire to equal out. Yet, yeah, t- <laughs> mental blank. Can't think of words. Um, not because of their desire to make society fairer. Right. When it came to the distribution of wealth and power and influence, but because they were atheists. Yeah. Mm, yeah. 
And he blamed the Jews and the communists and the New Dealers for shutting down his paper. He died in 1979. So, yeah, a bit like Napoleon being thrown on St. Helena. (laughs) Right. He went from a position of incredible power and influence, 40, 30, 40 million people listening to his radio broadcasts, all these people attending rallies and reading his paper and stuff, to just being stuffed in a little box. Yeah. And that box buried underground and covered up with dirt, and they shut him down. The American government, Mm -hmm. this is my point, the American government shut him up. Yeah. Because they didn't like what he was saying. Yeah. Well, in time the of Roosevelt war. The Roosevelt government. Right. Oh, absolutely. No, don't absolutely. get me in time of war bullshit, man. The no, Roosevelt no. government right. shut him down. Yeah. But, I mean, between the time he was shut down in 42 and he retired as a pastor in 1966, and I think they lived in 1972, hopefully those investments that he was getting and squandering away, hopefully that paid off well and he had a comfortable life. But for a while, he was at the pinnacle and he could sway the country with his words, and then he just goes back to being a humble priest and then just a body in the ground. So get over yourself. (laughs) The ironic thing about guys like this is that they complained that the communists in America were taking their marching orders from Moscow. Mm -hmm. Yet at the end of the day, he took his marching orders from the Pope in Rome. Yeah. But it's got God in it, so it's okay. Yeah. I guess. All right. Well, that's the end of this episode. We'll be back next time with how the Christians got it right <laughs> in terms of organizing their anti-communist they learned. Uh, rhetoric. Yeah, They learned. After Charlie Coughlin, they figured out a different way to do it, and it was much more powerful and much more effective and survived because they had the support of the capitalists but that will be next week. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. That's the opinion.